Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm John Snow and this week's guest is Robert Harris. Robert started out in journalism and had a ringside seat for the rise of New Labour. But after striking gold with Fatherland, he launched a second career as a novelist and never looked back. Robert's latest bestseller, The Act of Oblivion, is set in a country that is divided after the English Civil War. It's his account of the greatest manhunt of the 17th century and the pursuit across continents of the men responsible for the execution of Charles I. Robert describes it as a curiously contemporary novel, and the past often calls to him when it has some relevance to the present day, because while he may not miss writing a column, Robert remains very much a political animal, and in this conversation, he reflects on two successful careers and the political characters and rhetoric of the present day. I hope you enjoy it. You've said that you were a novelist earning a living as a journalist. All these years on, what, if anything, do you miss about political journalism? I'm tempted to say I miss it like a hole in the head. To be honest with you, John, um, I always wanted to write, and I knew it was probably the best way I could make a living. And I plied my trade, really, and I've always been interested in politics. And when I was offered the chance to be political editor of The Observer, I felt I had to take it. And I did enjoy it, and I did get a lot out of it, both that and stints as a columnist on The Sunday Times and then The Daily Telegraph. But if, I, if I'm honest, I always found it a strain, a panic-inducing fear to produce a weekly column and it really was work. I mean, I never really felt relaxed doing it. It was always a strain. And uh, so when I was able finally to give it up and start writing novels, that was great. And I don't miss it. I'm much more comfortable in a longer form, and in particular now writing uh, fiction. Boris Johnson resigns. Isn't there a little pang? Isn't there a moment when you think, oh, I'd like to write something about that? No, I, I mean, really not. I was actually invited by a few papers to write something about it. And I thought, well, I don't have anything original to say, actually. Or if I'm going to think of something original to say, it's going to take me a long while to do it. I mean, when I was writing a column, I used to go for long walks, an hour, an hour, two at a time, during which I would think and think about the subject and try and find some new way of talking about it that was my main job, it seemed to me, as a journalist. For busy people reading the weekend papers, I could give them an opinion that, that would save them having to sit down and cudgel their brains and come up with one of their own. That was the job. The reality in which we all live cries out for people who are going to be analytical and indeed urge solutions. 
Does anyone listen, though, John? This is one of the things. I mean, I comforted myself, <laughs> even when I was at my most kind of... Do you uh, mean to say I've been broadcasting for whatever it was, 41 years on Channel 4 News? Well, I think... And, convey, and nobody was listening. <laughs> conveying the news and the art of the interviewer are, are a separate thing. The comment article, yeah. the argumentative, this is my view piece... I wonder now whether anyone's mind has changed by that, whether we just, the people who are with left-wing opinions read The Guardian, the people with right-wing opinions read The Times or The Telegraph, and they're very happy with their views. I mean, I wonder how many comment pieces actually ever change anyone's mind. At one time, I used to think that they did, and that was part of a democratic debate. And one of the depressing things is you wonder whether that's the case. I mean, say... You know, um, you could write endless articles about Brexit, but who would listen? People would nod along with agreement who take my view on Brexit and people who don't would just say, oh, here he goes again and throw it in the bin. I mean, I, I, it's like facts and argument don't really carry the weight they used to. But they do inside your head. You're having these arguments with yourself all the time when you read the stuff, when you notice something on telly or whatever it is or something which somebody said to you. Yes, I am. But it's a question then of do I really want to give myself the anxiety of trying to write about it? I, I mean, this sounds pathetic, I know, but I think to expose yourself by writing an article which might be read by half a million people, I treated that with great respect. It was a bit like week after week going on stage and delivering a stand-up routine and uh, when it worked, it was great when mm. people used to ring up or, you know, say, oh, that was good and so on. And you felt that you'd nailed something. That was good. But but it came at a price, I must say. And to sit and do that about Boris Johnson's resignation, I would have found it quite difficult. Also, I'm out of the game now, you know. I mean, half the people in the cabinet and the shadow cabinet, I can't begin to name. In fact, more than half. There was something about Boris Johnson that was... Beyond fiction. Oh, I, that's undoubtedly true. Even you couldn't have made him up. No, I couldn't have made him up. I wouldn't have begun to. And if I had, the novel would have been returned to me by the editor saying, I'm sorry, this is just completely implausible. No one like this would ever have become prime minister, nor would he have done these strange things. That doesn't make any sense at all. In a sense, one of the things I like about novels is they create an order and a logic out of the chaos of reality. And so if I was to create a prime minister, it would have to follow certain logical rules, or a president of the United States, for that matter. They would have to be figures you could imagine winning an election, running a government, behaving in a way we would all accept. You couldn't possibly have someone behaving like Trump, or indeed like Johnson. But that's what's so peculiar about our times, isn't it? That we seem to have bred a situation in which there are people in power who don't seem in a funny sort of way to belong there. Yes, that's true. I mean, it's, it is the case that most people who get to the top in politics are a little bit odd. They wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. And they may be odd in ways that are brilliant and with perseverance and determination, but they can be quite strange. I mean, most of the prime ministers, if one thinks back to them, I mean, Edward Heath, say, or um, Gordon Brown, Theresa May, they're all sort of quite quirky. But that's part of the fascination of reading about and studying politics is the nature of the ambition that takes someone to the top. And actually, in most of my books even the ones about ancient Rome, really, are about that. What carries someone to the top? What impels them to get office? Why do they want it so much? 
even though they know it must surely end in disaster, as it invariably does. You've said that reporting on Tony Blair, uh, you saw power close up. Was that period of your reporting vital to your subsequent fiction writing? Yes, it was, because started off, I was appointed to the job at the beginning of 1989, at the height of the Thatcher power. And uh, I was invited by Andrew Neil, the then editor, to write a column to annoy Sunday Times readers, uh, <laughs> to put, as it were, the Neil Kinnock point of view, the Labour point of view, which I did with some relish. And then the political climate gradually changed, and the lead columnist, Brian Walden, left. And to my surprise, I suddenly found that I was the main political commentator on the paper. And given the power of the Sunday Times, the fact that there was someone vaguely sympathetic to the liberal left cause meant that I was quite valuable to the Labour Party. I didn't even really think about it, but because uh, I didn't used to meet many, I just used to write it. Didn't usually meet many politicians. No, it was better to write a column without meeting them. I, you know, my column wasn't about inside track news. It was about a longer view. And uh, I found it easier to not see too many of them. But this young shadow employment spokesman, Tony Blair... Uh, his office rang up and said he'd like to see me. So I went out to lunch with him before the 92 election. He reached out to you? Yes, he did. It was very interesting. And I had a fascinating lunch with him. And he said that he thought that Labour would uh, lose the next election under Kinnock, which most people thought they were going to win. And he also said that when it did, it was time for the Labour Party to completely change. And Gordon Brown would stand to be leader and he would stand to be deputy leader. And would I be interested in joining them in some way? Well, I was a bit hesitant about that because I, I was a journalist, not a politician. But we kept in touch. In the end, Gordon Brown in the words of the Blairites, at least bottled it. He didn't want to stand against John Smith. And uh, Tony Blair wanted to run for deputy leader but was persuaded not to by the unions. And so that moment passed. But then, sadly, John Smith died. Blair won the leadership. And then he came back. Then we renewed contact. We renewed contact or I renewed contact? He renewed contact, really. That's interesting. Yes, and he wanted me to travel around with him during the election campaign of 97 and write one of those instant books, write an election diary. Alistair Campbell, who was keeping his own diary, was dead against this, and they had a huge row about it, which Campbell records in his own diary, and I was excluded from the campaign for the first two weeks. And then Tony Blair really went behind Alistair's back and said, he rang me and said from the campaign, said, come, I want you to come, come tomorrow, I think it was to Southampton, and we'll get you going, ignore Alistair. Mm -hmm. So I joined him, and for the last two weeks or so of the campaign, I was with him all the time. I would fly on his private jet to meetings, on the battle bus that he had, and so on. And he talked very candidly. And, I mean, I wrote a long article about it for the Sunday Times. I didn't publish a book. But in the end, what I observed was very useful to me to see someone on the brink of becoming prime minister, on the edge of power, to observe them in the dressing room before they went out to address a large meeting, to see them... You know, just a thousand tiny little things that were just incredibly useful to me. I mean, Tony Blair may well feel, with some justification, that I rewarded him ungratefully for the insights he gave me. But, you know, that's my job, uh, just as it was his job to court a journalist from the Sunday Times. I mean, it wasn't my big brown eyes that drew 
be to him. <laughs> You're probably too modest to say that actually both of you benefited from it. Yes, there was another very funny thing, which was, of course, Alistair was teetotal and the bodyguard couldn't drink and Cherie <laughs> didn't drink, but Tony actually, unwinding after a speech, did like to have a drink. The people providing the private jets used to stow bottles of wine or beer mm. under the seat and again and again Tony would say Robert you'd like a drink wouldn't you and then he'd pull the bottle out and I, I realised to some degree I, I was there because <laughs> providing uh, it a service it enabled him to have a drink yeah and looking back on him now because after all that was decades ago how do you view him now well I think he was immensely gifted politician probably the most gifted I ever knew properly. I never really knew Margaret Thatcher at all, but he was in many ways actually a better politician even than she was because he was brilliant both on the platform, Mm. speaker, in the commons. He was brilliant at organisation. He could do it all. He could play in every position, as it were, and he had imagination. I mean, one of the great things I think is required in a really big politician is to pull everything together almost like an artist. They see what they want and they hire the people and they work their way towards this vision. That is what we don't seem to have at the moment. Mm. And Blair had vision, whether he agreed with it or not. He knew what he wanted to do. And certainly for the first four or five years, he was pretty brilliant. I fell out with him really because of his treatment of Peter Mandelson, who was a is a great mm. friend of mine. Mm. And then, of course, over the Iraq war. And I'm afraid that and the way that he walked out of Parliament once he ceased to be Prime Minister, literally walked out and never came back to make money. I think that all that does tarnish his reputation. But at his peak, well, as someone says in The, the Ghost, uh, you know, he wasn't a politician, he was a craze. <laughs> but it's an interesting thing because I find myself thinking about rhetoric And there was some rhetoric in those days, but are we rhetoric-free now? Oh, I mean, it's really depressing, actually. That's one of the things where you say, would you like to cover politics now? Well, no, I wouldn't really. Is this because you and I, our profession, have had too much access? Partly. I mean, in the end, what is the purpose of the great speech, either platform or parliamentary? It is to sway opinion. How is opinion swayed now? not through speeches, which don't get any coverage. It's swayed through repetition and sound bites and image on the screen. But you and I will remember things like the party conferences. I mean, those epic party conferences of Labour's in the 1970s, where you had Dennis Healy making brilliant speeches, Tony Benn. You know, there was a real clash of ideas. The great modern platform orators, all that is gone. And certainly the parliamentary speeches are pathetic compared to what they used to be. But where does that lead? Well, it leads to boring politicians, actually. I think a lot of them are very safe. They're no better speaker than any man or woman on the street, by and large. They cleave to a line. This, in turn, turns people off politics. It's very depressing. It's very safety first. Does it lead to a disconnected electorate? Yes, I think it does. It's rather dangerous then. It is. And you can't think of politicians who stir the blood uh, in a way that those great figures that I remember, big figures, whether you like their politics or not, there's simply nothing compared to that. I mean, compare that to a Rishi Sunak, Liz Truss Mm. contest. I mean, and... Tell me there hasn't been a decline in the quality of politicians. Well, what does the historian in you tell us 
about where that leads us? Well, a study of the past doesn't necessarily give you any guidance to what will happen in the future. I think that these things often go in cycles. And we're obviously in a period of some turmoil. And this Mm. may well throw up a different kind of politician. Something one feels will change here. Mm. Something has to put the parliament back at the heart of our politics because at the moment announcements are generally made to the media or leaked out days in advance. I mean, I'm sick of hearing the Prime Minister today will say, you know, um, Mm. because someone's been given a few paragraphs from the speech. We do have to reform our political system. It's not working. When we ended up with a choice of Prime Minister between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, something had gone wrong with the system. that That was all we were offered. And we need to find some way of getting more talented people into Mm. politics, I think. But this is so interesting because you left political reporting, but the political animal in you, the political observer, the political judge, if you like, within you, is very far from dead. No, well, that's certainly true. I mean, politics for me, politics is my football, really, Mm. and I've always been interested in it. I just feel that now, rather than watching premiership teams, I'm watching, you know, kind of Northern League on a wet <laughs> Wednesday evening. I miss those clashes of those big figures. But mm. the, uh, the the game of politics, the, the way that it exposes character, all the things that surround it, the kind of plotting and ambition, mm. the nobility, the corruption, the whole thing is marvellous to me. And that really is... Well, I've made my living writing about power. Essentially, that's the common thread of my novels. In a way, you owe this career that you didn't like and have got rid of uh, a very great deal. I do. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. I mean, I I loved it at the time. I loved being a TV journalist, certainly. Uh, I started off on the Tonight programme in the late 70s. Then I went with uh, the editor of that programme when he took over Panorama, and I was a researcher. It was Jeremy Paxman's researcher, for example, and we, we forged a, a friendship which, which still endures. And then I moved to Newsnight as a reporter and then back to Panorama, now as a reporter myself. I travelled all over the world, met astonishing people, not as much as you did, but still a lot. And that, that was a terrific memory bank of things to draw on. It was the print journalism which I found harder. And I think that, you know... If you're going to do something well, you probably are going to find it quite hard, actually. If someone runs 100 metres, they shouldn't stroll off the track the moment they finish. They should be doubled up in pain if they're going to really dig in and get the best they can out of themselves. So, I mean, you know, writing is hard work. But it's interesting because you were fuelled by present-day politics. I mean, that was what you were doing right at the beginning. You write, though, of the past, and I'm surprised in a way. You see, for example, you look at... Boris Johnson, with whom I'm obsessed, I must admit. I think anybody who's been on deck during that premiership finds it intriguing. But you're not tempted in any way to go to the present. No, because, well, first of all, there's a lot of people can write about Boris Johnson better than I can. People who observed him close up, people who have the contacts in politics to get the stories. I can't compete with that. What I can do is take the themes that fascinate me some of which are there in the rise of Johnson and his fall, and to universalise them, I suppose, to put it pretentiously, through uh, writing a novel. One of my favourite quotations about writing, George Orwell, he said he wanted to turn political writing into an art. 
What he meant by that is not that he wanted to write poetic kind of essays. He wanted to use the tools of the artist, the in his case of the novelist, to create works like Animal Farm and 1984 through the use of imagination, character, story. And they universalised truths about politics in a way that an essay or a report, however brilliant, cannot they cross boundaries and time, and he is really the exemplar for me, and that's what he does, and, and that's what's interesting. And the books say about Cicero are my summation of what I know and feel about politics, having observed politicians, but they're not bound by time and space to Boris Johnson or Tony Blair or whoever it may be. It's an extraordinary thing to have that fiction life coupled with a continued obsession with British politics. Yes, I well, it's a matter of the balance of your life. I mean, you know, the novels that I have written, not all of them, but some of them are still read, like uh, Fatherland and mm. the Cicero books and so on. No column that I wrote, even though I was in the big paper like the Sunday Times, no column that I wrote is ever read again. I mean, they've gone. I mean, in a sense, that's what one of the mm. joys of journalism. Mm. It's gone the next day. But I crave, however illusory it is, for a little bit of permanence, for something that people can go back to and look at again. And uh, you don't get that with journalism. And if we go back to the example of Orwell, Orwell wasn't really a great novelist. He was the most brilliant essayist, probably, mm. of the 20th century. But no one would read his essays if he hadn't written 1984 and Animal Farm, mm. which are as fresh to read today as they were when they were written. They transcend mm. journalism. And I suppose, in essence, that's what I'm trying to say, that you can write something that can be read in other countries and can still be read 30 years later, and that doesn't really apply to journalism. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's a big thing to do to chuck in a really good establishment job as you had in journalism. By the time I published my first novel in 1992. I'd already done a good apprenticeship because I'd started at 21. So I'd been around a lot. I went to America, traveled around the world. And there's a wonderful phrase of Henry James's where he says there was one particular summer in America, which he spent with friends when he was a young man. And he said that those few weeks provided him with all the material he ever needed to be a writer. And in a way that for me was that six months or a year before Labour took over in 1997, I saw everything really up close and it gave me confidence in writing about power in fictional terms as to how people would behave and that was incredibly useful. I'm interested in that concept of confidence. I mean, did you really believe you could 
live a life as a novelist? Well, I mean, I'm afraid I never had the courage to do that, John, to be honest. I wrote books whilst I was a journalist, both at the BBC and in papers, books like Selling Hitler about the Hitler Diaries, Gotcha about the Falklands Crisis. So I had this sort of twin track of a day job, as it were, and then weekends and holidays I would write, which was my great love, but I was financed to do it by the other job. You were getting material while you were going along, and then you were going to cut off the origin of the material and go it alone. And that's a very big decision, given that you had a comfortable wage and all the rest of it. Was it a leap in the dark? No, you were pretty confident you could do it. Well, I, I had written a third of my first novel, Fatherland. It was sent to my American agent, along with a proposal for a biography of John le Carre, who'd sort of given me a half wink that he would not impede me writing it. And I thought that the Le Carre biography, this was in 1990 or 91, would be the thing that they would be interested in. But it wasn't. These New York publishers went mad for this first third of Fatherland. I'm not surprised. I mean, to this day, I remember the amazing effect it had on me. Uh, well, thank you. Well, anyway, there, there was a bidding war, and I ended up being offered more for the novel, which was not yet finished, than I'd earned in all the previous years of my working life. I mean, near 13, 14 years of work. So it wasn't far from being a leap in the dark, actually. It was a, it was a well-cushioned... <laughs> slide into privilege in a way so I finished the book and then it just it would have been crazy not to have embarked on another one so that in the end I kind of went back to doing stints as a columnist because I kind of ran out of ideas for novels and I needed to keep myself occupied latterly for the last 20 odd years or so mercifully I've always had plenty of ideas you mentioned Le Carre he was obviously generous it's extraordinary because you would think that, you know, somebody already on the turf wouldn't be very interested in seeing somebody coming up behind him. Well, yes, he was generous, actually. I mean, I remember in 1992, just after Fatherland came out, I was in the White Tower restaurant. You remember that old restaurant on Charlotte Street? We may even have had lunch together. Yes, Yes, now gone, alas. Anyway, I was there with Robert McCrum, a mutual friend of ours, a literary editor, and my editor at Faber when he was a publisher. And Le Carre came over, and this was about two, three months after Fatherland had been published, and it was, it had been number one and the bestseller list, and he came out and said, you're on a roll, congratulations. And it was very touching. Robert, his jaw dropped at this legendary figure approaching me. So, yeah, he was generous. He could be quite funny, though, because I did then pursue the idea of writing this book about him and went and stayed with him down in Cornwall. And I remember him saying to me, I've got the secret of life, Robert. And I said, oh, OK, what's that? And I'm <laughs> expecting some great tip. And he said, the half bottle of champagne, <laughs> which he then opened, uh, which he normally would drink on his own. And I remember I turned up in rather a flashy car and he said, oh, that's a very nice car. My accountant drives one like that. <laughs> so he did have a very funny way of putting you in your place. What about the half bottle of champagne? Is that still on duty? Do you know, it is a good tip. And one of the perils of the writer's life, and I think maybe this happened to him as well, is that you can find yourself drinking a bit on your own. I mean, you do a stint of work, 
good or bad you've put down the words for the day and you have that feeling like you've come off air broadcasting or come off stage, uh, you want to relax. And um, so anyway, the half bottle of champagne is a pretty good tip. Well, he, he made it to nearly 90, so uh, it can't have been a bad idea. You tend to avoid political stories of the present and look to the past. You've even said that historical fiction is really contemporary fiction. Can you elaborate? Yes. Well, take the the latest book that I've done, Act of Oblivion, about uh, the hunt for the regicides. Totally new turf for me. I knew nothing of what had been going on. No, nor did I, to be perfectly honest. How did honest. you find out? Well, I just saw a tweet saying, you know, the greatest manhunt of the 17th century. And I thought, well, oh, that sounds interesting. So I sort of clicked on the link and found it was about this manhunt that started in 1660 to find all these men and the way that they were tracked down and a lot of them rather gruesomely executed. And I just thought, well... You know, that's a good story. If I could, here's a manhunt. There was no manhunter, though. I, I wonder how they did it. I wonder who did it, who worked it out. Who? So I, that was how it started, in that curiosity. And why I say that even that book is a book about contemporary times is why out of all the stories in history, to some of them, the destruction of Pompeii, the uh, Dreyfus affair, why do they call to you it must be because there's something in them that speaks to us in the present day. So that's what I mean. Even subconsciously, you have been drawn to something because it has some relevance to our times. I mean, there are many, many historical stories that are completely lacking an interest to us. But the ones that you want to write about, I mean, I didn't realise. I thought it was a, this would just be a good yarn, especially these two regicides who went on the run across America, a father-in-law and son-in-law, and this man on their tail, like a kind of Puritan Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And that was really what I focused on. But then I realised, it was only towards the end of writing the book, that I realised I was writing about a divided country, Britain. I was writing, really, about the birth of America with these Puritan, isolated Puritan communities. So curiously, it is a contemporary book. It's extraordinary because, of course, it is totally non-contemporary in the circumstances. I mean, there was no electronic surveillance. None of the tools that we have nowadays which would have found two people on the run. And yet you make a very contemporary story out of it. Well, they did certain things. I mean, they watched the ports, they closed the ports, they issued a reward of uh, £100 a head for these two men, Colonel Wally and Colonel Goff, which was a fortune in those days. And they went from town to town trying to find them. And this procedural aspect of a manhunt fascinated me. And when in the end they couldn't really bring them back, some who were hiding, say, in Switzerland, they couldn't bring them back for trial because the authorities there wouldn't let them be taken. They sent death squads to try and assassinate them. So these things are, you know, the tools are the printing press and the musket, but the impulse behind them is the same. And curiously, one of the things that's good about writing historical fiction is you can get back to kind of basics and tell a story, whereas today everything can be so short-circuited by, you know, a Google search or something that all the tension and drama, the gumshoe detective is gone. Whereas in the past, you know, you can get back to human beings more easily. And I'm wondering how on earth you get the sources to put this thing together, because are there any books on this? There are a couple of books on the subject, and I sort of started with those. 
First of all, I wanted to create the Manhunter, a fictional character called Richard Naylor in my book, who is... Uh, so I read a lot of very boring, dusty tomes on the governmental system of the 17th century. I mean, how was the country run? Well, there was no Scotland Yard. Where would this man have worked? And essentially, the Privy Council was the kind of equivalent of the Cabinet, roughly. It had subcommittees to deal with trade, foreign affairs... It's reasonable to assume that there was a subcommittee to deal with the regicides in, in 1660, once they brought in this act of oblivion under which they were prosecuted. And there would have been a clerk or a secretary to that. And I thought, here is my man, here's my regicide hunter. So I read a lot about where the Privy Council met and what sort of people would be given the clerkship or a secretaryship. They would have been supporters of the royalist cause who were owed a favour. I begin to build up now a picture of this ex-Lincoln's-in lawyer who is given this job. And so I create that figure, and I have to read a lot. And then the two that I wanted him to pursue, Colonel Wally and Colonel Goff, father-in-law and son-in-law, they fled to America. Who were they? Well, I tracked down all the letters I could that existed from them, uh, where they were born, discovered some new things about them, in fact. And then how did they survive in America? Where did they go? How? And this is when then imagination kicks in. You know, month after month goes by where you're thinking and you're researching, reading books, looking at maps and so on. But is there anything in America that talks to you about what actually happened that side of the Atlantic uh, as they were looking for them? Well, there are a few accounts of what happened to them. The younger man, Goff, who was in his uh, about 40 or so, 42, when he went on the run, he kept a kind of journal which was lost, destroyed in a fire a century or more after his death, but some notes from it survived, so we have a kind of glimpse of, of where they were, at least. There, some letters survived between him and his wife. He had left five children behind in London. And they were rather moving, so they were useful. And then there are accounts of what it was like to live in New England in those first, you know, 50 years or so of settlement. There was something called the Old Connecticut Path, which ran from Boston, Massachusetts, across to the Connecticut River. And I knew that my two men walked that path, almost certainly walked it in the dead of winter because it was too narrow. Did you walk it too? No, I didn't. And to be honest, there seemed no point to me in going to New England but to research the book. Well, yes, and I think it's vivid because it comes from the imagination. And if I, I, do, I do know New England. Uh, indeed, one of my books, The Ghost, was set on Martha's Vineyard. But therefore, I know that it's a place of freeways and uh, skyscrapers and industrial parks and to see as it was, you know, virgin, so to speak, 300 years ago is you can't see it under all the concrete and glass now. Could you make a film out of Act of Oblivion? Well, I hope so. The TV rights have been bought by the company that makes Downton Abbey. Oh, that'll uh, be an event. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Not cheap to make either. No, um, they would be looking to make a six or eight part um drama out of it. That's one way you can tell the story. The other way is to make it a two-hour movie, a kind of chase across snowbound, deserted New England, a bit like The Revenant. Mm. But one of the things that's happened since I've been writing novels and selling them for selling the screen rights is that the power has shifted really towards television and platforms. Mm. 
and away from the traditional big Hollywood movie. You don't just write books, you read them too. And your house is festooned with vast shelves of books. And you talk about reducing that. <laughs> well, I dumped quite a lot of books in the uh, summer because, it, you know, it was finally getting hopeless, actually. And so I, one of the things I got rid of was all the foreign editions of my books because mm. it was foreign publishers send them to you and it's quite nice to have them. But then I literally never look at them. So yeah. I thought, well, all that can go. And then I did get rid of quite a lot. When I started collecting books, really, it was like a working library you don't really need that anymore because you can get almost everything you want on the internet. Isn't that an extraordinary kind of description of our civilization? In some ways, we're losing something which was very special. Reading a book is not the same as drifting through it on a computer. No, and also, if I look at a shelf of books or a wall of books, it is a kind of map to my mind and my past you know i can remember where i was when i read that or bought that you know you can see strange connections on a shelf between books and it stimulates the mind in a way that simply thinking oh i will download this ebook doesn't i mean does anybody look at their kindle library i mean you don't do you but if you look at a wall of books it's a rather beautiful thing the random distribution of colours and the titles and there's an aesthetic pleasure simply in looking at books. I've got old paperbacks that date back to, you know, when I was a teenager. Mm. I, those I really don't want to throw away. Your wife, Jill, writes books too. What's it like having two book writers in the same house? Um, it's good. It's quiet, actually, because we used to have four children in the house and now they've gone. And so there's just the, the click-click of the typewriter key. <laughs> <laughs> the not even the typewriter keys, the, the keyboards, you know, each in our own room. But it's good, and I'm really pleased that she's had this success later in her career. How many more books are you going to write? <laughs> well, that's a cruel question, really. Well, I mean... Or, or, or a question that's How many ideas to... do you have in your head? I have books? maybe two or three ideas, but I'm aware you just do the math, really. I mean, I've written, published 15 novels mm. over 30 years. How many more can I do realistically, given that every author pretty well starts to slow up once they get to my age? I'm 65. Um, no age, it has to be said. No. <laughs> I'm 10 years well, older, old boy. <laughs> OK, all right. Well, you're an advert for it. But I don't know, John, to be honest. But I do know I'll go on till I drop because... From the age of about eight, there's nothing else I've really wanted to do. Are you started on the next one? I'm sort of thinking about one and uh, just trying to see if I can make it work. I, one thing I don't want to do is put any pressure on myself. I have had a run of doing a book a year, mm. and that is quite a strain, and I think it'll be two years between these titles, I think. I wonder if you can behave. <laughs> <laughs> well, if an idea drops into your lap, like, for instance, The Ghost did, yeah. th that book was written in about three or four months. That's marvellous if you can do that because it feels like you're in a conversation with the audience. But how lucky you are that you can have a flash in the brain suddenly and you think there's a book there. One of the things I'm terrifically grateful for is to, is to have an audience who pretty loyally do turn out and buy the book. So, you know, you're aware of the possibility that you can do that. You can turn on a dime. And that, that has come over 30 years of writing books. Well, it's delightful to talk to you. And uh, thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you, John. I've enjoyed it a lot. 
That was Robert Harris, a prolific author who remains an insightful political commentator and someone I'm fortunate enough to call a friend. Robert's latest novel is The Act of Oblivion, and you can find a link to that and his many other books in the episode description. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. If you'd like to get in touch, please email hello at snowcast.uk. I'll be sharing new episodes every Tuesday, so please subscribe on your platform of choice. And I hope to meet you back here very soon. Goodbye for now.